Welcome everyone to the second edition of Bloods of Old. Joel Brown, your host here, and would like to take this time to thank everyone for the positive feedback in regards to the debut episode with Ryan O'Keefe. And if you would like to connect online, Bloods of Old is now on Facebook and Twitter, and we're on most popular podcast streaming services, so make sure to follow and subscribe to Bloods of Old on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Any support is absolutely appreciated, and we'd love to hear feedback from fellow Swan supporters. But let's not waste any more time. Let's get into the interview with Darren Criswell. We've kicked into... Oh, Motlock, silly! Motlock, silly! Off the ball! He grabbed him round the net! What a mistake! He comes in deliberately. Drop punt for goal. He's kicked it. The Swans have won. What a game of football. The Swans have won by three points. Oh, and they go to Creswell. Reminiscent of that famous preliminary final win over the Bombers. Round four, 2002, Sydney v North Melbourne. I was a young 13-year-old pimply-faced kid in the stands at the SCG that night and uh, I watched Darren Creswell kick that winning goal after the siren. Uh, it was something which really ignited my passion for AFL footy and the red and the white. Now, Darren Creswell, he is regarded as one of the toughest men to play Aussie rules. I believe the great Ron Barassi donned him the nickname The Miracle Man. He was named in both the Swans and Tasmanian teams of the century. It's a big hello and welcome to Darren Creswell. Uh, good afternoon, Joel. How are you? Very, very well. i got to say, we'll sort of talk a little bit off air there, but 2020 hasn't been the best year for a lot of people. How's it been treating you? Oh, it's been tough right throughout the whole country and worldwide, to be honest, but like I said, being in the country, we've been pretty fortunate, to be honest. Obviously, we're in the uh, landscaping business, which clearly uh, we do a lot of schools and TAFEs and, and hotels, etc. Um, so we've been pretty fortunate. That hasn't really affected our work. Um, I think the worst we got to in, in, in the country was stage three, but we've been pretty fortunate that we've been able to keep working, um, which has been really, really positive. Um, obviously, we've got a, a group of 14 in our workforce, so... Everyone's been able to keep going, um, which has been great. Off the back of uh, that winning goal against North Melbourne back in 2002, kicking a goal after the siren doesn't get much better than that, especially to win the game. But I believe it was Andrew Dunkley's uh, 200th game. Is it true that he came up to you at the end of that game and thanked you for, I guess, winning the game and making the game that little bit more special? Yeah, he was pretty happy, Candles. Um, but uh, I was pretty lucky, to be honest. Like I think Craig Holden, the runner at the time, came out and said there's about... 15 or 20 seconds to go. Knew I needed to do something, so I was a little little uh, cheapy to Motlop. He reacted to it and threw his arm back, and I got a free kick, fortunately enough. And uh, I worked a lot pretty much that whole year with Brett Allison um, on my goal kicking and routine. Uh, and Fruity really helped me out a lot, so I didn't think too much about the end result. Just went through my routine. I was pretty, I was fortunate enough to strike it pretty well, and um, yeah, I was pretty happy to get that uh, get that through. I don't think Rocket was that confident. But I heard Bruzy in the coach's box said, no, nah, no, nah, he'll kick it. So, um, yeah, it was a great moment, uh, something I'll never forget and look back fondly now upon. It's definitely one of those iconic moments. I mean, obviously, the Tony Lockett, I think, uh, point after the siren in the prelim in 96. But I definitely think that goal's up there. But I guess more on Andrew Dunkley, his 200th game. Uh, last year, he was speaking uh, on open mic and basically said uh, his relationship with the Swans is 
basically non-existent. I mean, he kind of felt like he was kind of pushed out of the club in 2002. I think he felt he could have, he could have gone on. Uh, you retire in 2003, a year after. Did you leave the Swans on your own terms? Uh, well, it was pretty sad what's happened with Dunks, to be honest. Like, um, I mean, the Swans have been such a, a big part of our lives. I mean, me, Kel, and and um, obviously Dunks and, and Swatter and Plugger and uh, Mark Bays, Dennis Carroll, uh, went through a lot of footy together when it wasn't great at the Swans. And uh, to see that sort of come up on open mic was a little bit disappointing. Obviously, it didn't end great for Dunks back in 202. I wasn't aware of the circumstances at the time. But certainly for me, I had multiple discussions with Ruzi. Look, probably wanted to keep going uh, towards the end, but then I realised that Ruzi was open to the idea if I wanted to do it. But copped a couple of injuries towards the end and um, the time time was right for me to retire. So look, I had a great time. My 12 years I spent at Sydney and very much loved the club and um, really great position now and Horses doing a great job. So I follow him. Um, certainly, yeah, no hard feelings on my part. And, um, yeah, I'm grateful that I got that opportunity to play with one of the great clubs uh, in Australia. And, I, was the, I mean, that's the next question was, one, I guess, your relationship with the Swans current day and, I guess, with Paul Roos, obviously taken over from 2002 and 2003. Yeah, well, look, obviously, uh, Rocket had a, Rodney Ede had a fantastic influence on my career. Um, so he was my coach pretty much for the whole but by the last year and a half under Ruzi. So obviously I've got a really, really strong relationship with Rocket. Ruzi, I played with Ruzi. Ruzi, was a, Ruzi and Plugger were instrumental in, in our, in our um, improvement as a football club, not only on the ground but also off the ground, media, etc., um, support base, uh, sponsorship, all the things that you need. Yeah, Ruzi done a great job. He changed a lot. I was probably a bit stubborn when Ruzi took over, to be honest, like that um, sometimes you don't like change and you don't realise it until you get a little bit older, but he was fantastic for the club. And, yeah, I was grateful enough to my last game as a prelim. Unfortunately, we couldn't get to a, to a grand final in that last year. But, yeah, he was enormous for the footy club and I've got enormous respect for Paul and, and, uh, and Rocket as well. And I guess, was there an opportunity when retiring in 2003 to stay in some capacity, whether that be uh, as a runner, assistant coach or some capacity at the club? Was that ever on the table? Well, it's funny you say that. Like, I'd been speaking to Geelong pretty much since halfway through the year about becoming an assistant coach down there. So that was always on the cards. So that probably made my decision a little bit easier, to be honest. I had something to fall back on. I love coaching. So pretty much when I retired, I accepted the role to be the midfield coach at Geelong and was lucky enough to, to have a big involvement in Jimmy Bartell and James Kelly, Joel Corey, Cameron Ling, so, and work with Bomber Thompson. So Bomber was, was fantastic coach, done a lot of hard work behind the scenes and seeing how he went about it was gave me a different aspect on footy because when you're a player, you don't see all the hard work behind the scenes. So, yeah, so I spent a year down there and um, that, was, that was fantastic for my development as a coach, no question. And I guess I ask about the, your current day relationship with the Swans because uh, in my research, correct me if I'm wrong, I was looking through the Swans Hall of Fame and a significant omission in my opinion, uh, no Darren Creswell. Yeah, that might, might have something to do with probably what happened after footy, to be honest. Like mm. like I said, like um, when I finished, when I come out of that AFL system, probably what made me a great player on the ground, or not a great player, what made me a, a good player on the ground was my willingness to, to compete. Basically, I was pretty, um, had tunnel vision for success and anyone that pretty much got in the way was 
was going to try and be removed by me. But you know, I was very had a lot of tunnel vision about what I wanted to get out of footy, and probably that aspect moving into general life outside of AFL didn't go down well with a lot of people, and I struggled to adjust not having that routine and basically that killer instinct followed outside the ground. Where now I'm a little bit older and wiser that um, you learn from your mistakes and. Although in, when I was thinking about it, I think about it a fair bit, really. I, I like to look forward, not back. That was in the past. Um, I like to be positive now and help people so they don't make the same mistakes I've made. But certainly, um, yeah, it wasn't great for me when I finished footy, but that's probably part of the reason. And I understand that. I don't begrudge the Swans for that. Um, like I said, like, I had a great career there and made a lot of good friends. And, yeah, I look fondly upon the club. So maybe one day... That, that might happen, but if it doesn't, it's not going to be the end of the world. Before we sort of get into life after footy, I want to go back. Uh, your footy career started in Tassie. Brief stint with the Geelong Reserves. You mentioned, obviously, uh, doing the assistant coaching with uh, Geelong uh, in 2004. I mean, was there a chance for you to work your way up the ranks at the Geelong Football Club in the Reserves? Uh, is that when I played? Uh, I think you played reserves and then you headed back to Tassie and then was yeah, it Yeah, so I played under my men's. I don't think I played a reserves game. I was pretty young and naive. I was from a country town called Strawn around the west coast of Tassie. Moved to Hobart. I'd only been there for about a year and that was like the big city for me because the population of Strawn was about 2,000. Mm. All of a sudden I was thrust upon in Geelong, although that's pretty much like a country town. But coming from Strawn, it's like a big city. And I just struggled to adapt. Um, I was pretty lonely. Miss family, miss the surroundings. I had it in the country in in, uh, in Tassie, um, so pretty much I played four or five reserve games and yeah went back home. I was fortunate enough to know that uh, three years later, Mark Yates, a former Geelong player, came across and coached me. And I think I was 21. I was a little bit older and a little bit wiser. And one of the second opportunity, and a lot of players don't get it, so I was fortunate enough to get that opportunity with Sydney in the mid-season draft, thanks to Gary Buchanan and Rob Snowden. Knew, knew what I wanted when I got there and, and made a lot of sacrifices when I first went to Sydney and um, I was lucky enough to, um, you know, to have a successful 12-year career there. You hit the nail on the head there, uh, 92 uh, mid-season draft. I think they're sort of been coining that, uh, bringing that back into the AFL. Uh, I guess especially sort of for what you'd, I guess you'd say, more mature age uh, footballers. Do you think uh, that's something they should definitely look at, I guess, sort of uh, giving uh, you know more mature players or like your 21, 22-year-olds more of a chance in like a mid-season draft? Yeah, I like it. I mean, um, sometimes clubs need to top up also with injury, um, whatever that might be, but it's an opportunity to keep players' hopes alive in that mid-season draft and there is a lot of talented players out there who quite just don't get that opportunity or probably not ready when they come out of TAC Cup or they develop a little bit slowly than what you know the average player, 18, 19 year old uh, does and you know, probably not ready to be thrust into the AFL environment at 18, 19 but 20, 21, 22 they might be. So in the state leagues there's some really good players running around and also I just go back to I think it was 2015 I coached Sam Murray for Wodonga Raiders and he missed out on TAC Cup Bushies. He had a fantastic year in the country and I was lucky enough to to speak to Kinnear and Sydney took a I took a pun on him and um, he played a couple of years there, then went to Collingwood. And so it was great that there's players out there in the country's region and obviously in in, um, in the state leagues. It gives opportunity for them to, with that mid-season draft, to, to show what they've got and with the hope of maybe getting selected. There's been a bit of debate uh, the past couple of years. Tasmania, 
if they should have an AFL side. I mean, a lot of greats have come out of Tassie. Uh, where do you sit on the fence with this, I guess? Uh, should the AFL have a Tasmanian side? It would be good if it, they did. I've got a 14-year-old down there at the moment. He goes pretty good. So hopefully they bring it in within the next three years. Oh, it would be great for the state. There's no question. I think they've got the funding to do it. Clearly the challenge will be is um, getting players to move down there, I think. Um, mm. Obviously, you know, Sleepy Hollow, so to speak, when you, speak, when you think of um, Melbourne, Perth with the weather and Queensland with the weather, etc. So that'll be a, a challenge in itself. And, and clearly the, south and the, the, sorry, the, the south and the north don't sort of get on that well. But, um, yeah, it, it'll be tough. I mean, splitting two, Tassie, that's probably the biggest problem in terms of the distance between Launceston and uh, Hobart. So uh, I think it can work. Um, it take a lot of hard lot of hard work for it to eventuate, but it'd certainly be uh, great for the Hobart and, and Tasmania, that's for sure. So you're a country boy, you come into the Harbour City, and I believe uh, Gary Bacanara, he's still the coach uh, at the time. I think you have a, about a year under him, and uh, that was really it. Uh, any thoughts on coaching uh, under Gary Bacanara? Oh, I was obviously watch Bucky play as a great player, so I was a little bit in awe, 21-year-old coming across, and I think I played, I come mid-season, I think I played eight out of the last ten, and then I had Bucky for, yeah, half the year, probably the next year in 93, I think, and um, unfortunately he was let go. I mean, people don't understand the pretty much the environment we're in then. Um, our facilities were were pretty average. Um, he didn't have the support in terms of assistant coaches around him, so probably, I imagine, walking out of Hawthorne and coming to Sydney would have been a huge shock for him. But I was a little bit naive then, to be honest. I was just happy to, to play, but I had a really strong relationship with Gary and I and, uh, was thankful for the opportunity he gave me. So I can't speak highly enough of him. Well, Gary Bacanara out, Ron Barassi in, uh, the man who donned you the nickname, the Miracle Man. How important was Barassi to your early days as a Sydney Swan and I guess uh, to the Sydney Swans overall? Well, he called me Dunks for about six weeks and he called Dunks Crezza. So I was a little bit disappointed because I thought I was a better kick than Dunks. <laughs> uh, I was sort of trying to get that out of him for a start. But once again, in awe of the great man. And um, what he, he was a little bit different than Bucky. He was probably more old school. But like he brought values to our club. There's no question in terms of uh, the basics and, and hardness of the footy and what he expected from, from us as a football team. And obviously outside that footy ground, he was magnificent in terms of promoting our club. And obviously he had a big hand in getting uh, Tony and Paul Roos to our footy club. So um, there was a big change evolving from when Bucky came in um, to the end of 95. And you could just see the confidence building. The crowd started to come through the door and, you know, the club started to get more professional about what we needed to do in terms of our facilities and education with coaches, etc. So, um yeah, he was he was magnificent for the Swans. There's no question about that. Well, in research, uh, 1993, uh, you're the most improved. Uh, 1994, you're the best and fairest and the Bob Skilton medalist. Is it it's safe to say Barassi got the the best out of you? Yeah. Oh, question. No question about that. Like once again, I think the players used to call me Sob, son of Barass, but I caught that name a bit. But he was pretty good to me, and although he was hard on me, like he told me, you know. Uh, when I needed to be told, and but on the other hand, he was he was really positive about my role in the side, and and promoted that to me um, very very well. And um, yeah, I, yeah, it was obviously it was a bit of a shock to win it in '94. I think I'd only been in the system for two or three, two years maybe. To do that with the great players that have won the award in the past, 
once again holds a special place um, when you look back now. But yeah, it was certainly some tough years. I mean, we copped some some pretty big beatings that year. And but I, he gave me roles to play on the best players, which I learned a lot. Of. I played on Greg Williams that year in '94, and played on Robert Harvey, who's a, the best player I've ever seen or played on. That's for sure. He was he was a machine. Uh, I learned so much off him. And in future years, when I got to be the player I probably wanted to be when I was getting on the getting tagged, that what he done to me, I actually learned a lot from him to be able to sort of overwork the other players who played on me. So um, it was a great learning curve. It was a bit of a dark period there uh, with the Swans because in doing the research, uh, there was potential for the Swans to merge with the Brisbane Bears, I, I think I read. Then obviously 95 is a bit of a, a changing point. But actually, I remember my nan saying to me that one of the biggest crowds that they got at the SCG was when Geelong and Sydney played each other and they were all there to basically see Gary Ablett. 96, I think that was. For memory, it was round, it was late in the year. Um, I think we, we capacity at the SCG was 40,000. So there was Plugger at one end and Gary Ablett at the other. Right. I remember that was about... Like eight or nine thousand next door in the footy stadium, you could not get in the ground watching it on the big screen. Wow! It was one of the big, it was just a it was a fantastic moment for our club, um, and the for you know all the hard yards we've been to to see this evolve in a short period of time from pretty much ninety two if the ball went over the fence you had to go get it yourself to being <laughs> absolutely playing in front of a full house. Yeah, I'll never forget that. Yeah, it was end of ninety six. It was fantastic, but like you said, ninety five was when we started to really make our mark. I think Paul Kelly won the Brownlow. Um, our reserves played in the grand final that year for memory. S- some of our younger players really started to develop and come through. Um, we won maybe eight or nine games that year, and you could really see some light at the end of the tunnel. And Yeah, so that, that was probably the start of pretty much our, our road to success, I would have thought. Now, you talk about plugger uh, Tony Lockett there. I mean... Can it not be, um, I guess, understated how important an impact uh, that he had on the game in New South Wales and especially for Sydney? Yeah, it was a, like I mentioned before, there was a lot of pretty much no one knew who we were but um, in terms of players. But when uh, Plugger and Ruzi and Barassi, those three big names of the AFL come into our club, it sort of put us on, on the map, so to speak, and people started to to stand up and take notice that these great people who could have gone anywhere to any club really, to be honest, came to the Sydney Swans and really thought that that really started to pretty much make people stand up and say, well, the Swans are here to stay. And that, uh, because there was some the doubts, I think maybe at the end of 92 that we mightn't even be in the AFL competition. So for those guys to come to our club, really um, cemented our position within the, within the AFL system. And 96, obviously, uh, Rocket Ede, he's uh, in charge now. But uh, you are a member of the Swans losing 1996 grand final against North Melbourne. As a player, is it something that sort of, I wouldn't say eats at you, but sort of in the back of your mind that you were, were one of the players who was regarded, you know, a tough AFL player, one of the best, especially in the Swans, and not have that premiership medallion? Oh, it does now. I mean, I think I was 24 uh, at that time. And... Once again, being naive when you're young, you think 24, I'll play in the next five or six. She's got plenty of time on my sleeve to play another one, but mm. that never happens. And that's my message to the, every player that I speak to now is don't take it for granted. It was obviously a big rise for us from 95 to 96. We finished minor premiers on top. 
um, won a close final against Hawthorne, close final against Essendon. I think maybe halfway through the second quarter at grand final day, we might have been 30 points up maybe. So everything was, was looking really positive. And then obviously they had a big second half of the second quarter and scores were pretty much level at half time and they grabbed all the momentum. But it was a great experience to play in the granny. Um, it was the last game my dad was at. So obviously I still look back at that fondly, knowing that he was there. Yeah, unfortunately I wasn't able to get back there. But, you know, like I said, it was great to see the boys get back in 205. There was a lot of players who played in that, in that uh, premiership that I played with and I couldn't be happier for the club and for those boys, for sure. You mentioned earlier that you you had a great relationship with uh, Rodney Eade. Uh, he was obviously the longest serving coach um, that you had. I guess sort of uh, of recent times, there's been some audio grabs uh, of uh, some sprays. Um, I was speaking with Ryan O'Keefe not too long ago and he said uh, what's out there on social media is harmless uh, from what uh, what he's heard back in the day. Uh, have you got any good uh, Rocket Eads sprays or did you kind of miss out on them? Oh, a couple of few. <laughs> I think he said to Matty Nix once after a final, he'll give him three clearances in case he loses two. Um, that was pretty brutal, I thought. Yeah, look, it, it's water. Rock, Rocket always had best intentions for players. Um, I remember once he gave Goodyear a good one and, um, Goodyear was pretty upset about it, and I remember having a chat to Adam about it after it, saying it's not personal. It's he just wants you to be better and tougher and stronger, and that's probably not the way to go about things today. But probably back then, that's probably how I seen. It. I was a bit old school, but Rusey sort of changed all that when he came in. But he was a fantastic coach. Um, his ability to to get players to well, pretty much he when he first came in in '96, he taught. Personally, I can speak for myself that so many things on footy that I thought I knew that I didn't like in, in the space of 12 months. So he's uh, strategically one of the best going around, um, sees the game really well. Match day is his, his biggest go. Like he just sees things evolve and is able to impact those with moves. Yeah, he was, he was, pretty, he was pretty strong, but um, I think there wasn't too many that he didn't miss. I don't think Plugger got one. I don't think got one uh, for memory. But you mentioned uh, Adam Goods there. Um, a young, it would have been a young Adam Goods. I imagine the debut in '99 wins the Rising Star Award. Did you see uh, the potential for him to become one of the greats, not only of Sydney but in the AFL? Yeah, for sure. He he actually lived in me Goodsy for about six months, I think, when he first came up. But he just had this running capacity and agility and and nous. Like he had pretty much all the attributes to be a star, which he became. I think he matured a lot in the years that, that he played. Uh, early on, he was, he was pretty mature. I remember we played a practice match at maybe Newcastle. We'd all, the game had finished and we all went inside and were sitting down and no good. He was still out signing signatures on the ground as a young bloke. So I don't think that went down too well with Rocket. But uh, yeah, he had all the fundamentals to be the player he was. Uh, um, he'd become a great leader of our footy club. It was harshly dealt with, I think, towards the end in terms of what people perceive him as. Um, he's a really nice guy, do anything for you, and clearly was one of the best players to ever play for Sydney. So, yeah, it was pretty sad the way it ended, to be honest with him. Um, people just really don't understand what a great guy he is and, and how much he's done for our club. Absolutely. Now, there was, um, when you used to do the practice games uh, at North Sydney Oval, um, I think it was, cause the reason why I love AFL and the Swans is because my nan was an absolute fanatic. And uh, we're sort of just waiting out at the front, and my nan sort of get, uh, went to Goodsey. Oh, can I can I get an autograph, Goodsey? And he comes back saying, "Of course you can, young lady." Now that doesn't seem like much, but that sort of 
holds in my memory and in my heart. And uh, yeah, it was pretty sad to, to see the way that it, that it ended. And I think it was, I mean, in my opinion, a bit of a, a gang mentality almost with people and how it came. Um, how did you sort of see it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know, it might be like, I call it tall poppy syndrome. It's just like, I just, it's unbelievable to, to see the way he was treated, to be honest. Like, and like I said, people don't really, they see him on TV and they see him play, but they don't understand how much his family and culture and his people mean to him. Like, mm. he's in that space and um, and he was like, he was a really lovely guy. Like, he'd do anything for you, like you just mentioned. And, and, and Mickey O'Loughlin was another one who would do that. The good thing about Sydney, there was no egos. Like, everyone got on really well. There was no, no that's pretty much why I think they've been. Well, we have been so strong and then it flowed on after I left that all the players got on really well and played for each other and that blood's culture. And, yeah, like I said, it was pretty sad to see um, to see Adam move away from footy, particularly everything he'd done for it, um, in that manner. Now, one iconic image that seems to stand the test of time, at least with Swans fans, is I think it was in 1997, SEG against Geelong and that knee that uh, popped out. I think it was a bit of a missed tackle or an awkward tackle. The knees popped out and the iconic image of you slapping it back in. Uh, is that something that you knew was going to kind of live on in the memories of a lot of Swans supporters and AFL fans? Oh, not at the time. It was actually in the 100th game and... Yeah, mum and my family flew down to Geelong. It was at Cadinia Park. Flew down to watch that game. And I, I think I only lasted maybe a quarter and a bit, maybe. Yeah, just twisted the wrong way. So my body went one way. I had screwings in and my leg, got, my foot got stuck. And obviously, kneecap came out. I'd had a history of dislocating my kneecap on my other leg, but I'd never done the left. Right. So I just remember looking down and sitting there. I was in shock, of course. I just thought, that's <laughs> That has to go back in and it took me I think four or five whacks to get it back in. But the pain relief that was gone after I got it back in was something I can never explain. It was like, oh, how good's that? It was pretty excruciating, to be honest. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. And it was funny. When I went back into the rooms with the doc, he goes, do you know all you had to do was straighten your leg? <laughs> I said, not really, mate. <laughs> Thanks for telling me. If it happens again, I know what to do. But, yeah, so I, was, I got it back in, which was amazing. I guess how is that knee now? Uh, you're a bit older now, uh, wiser, but the, how's the body holding up or that knee? It's funny you say that. I was in Sydney on Tuesday and had an arthroscope. Uh, got a bit of arthritis in it, sorry. So I'm having some bit of problems with my knees at the moment. They're a little bit sore, but I think I had a bit of bone flat around in there and, and meniscus, so... Coming across the Swans doctor hooked me up there and I went in and had an arthroscope. Yeah, I don't know how they'll be in 10 years. Rock had always said to me, because I used to do a lot of running on the roads when I was when I was younger, um, used to push the envelope a little bit too much. And he said, when you turn 50, you won't be able to walk. And he's not far wrong, but yeah, so hope for touch wood I can sort of press on for a little bit longer before I have to have any major knee um, replacements or anything like that. Oh, absolutely. And what's remarkable is, well, you played the next week as well. They told me I wasn't playing. I said, I'm playing. And I remember I was up. That's the mindset I was in. I was up to midnight till six in the morning, just ice. And I remember going to the physio over in North Sydney three or four times a day. Uh, I just done everything I could to play. And I was lucky enough that I didn't miss any footy that year. So um, I had an operation at the end of the year to rectify the problem of it coming out, which was good. So it never happened again. But, yeah, I was just that's the mindset I was in back then was just going to make it happen. Would you say that was one of the worst injuries you had during your football career? I remember 98. 
Um, I thought we had a pretty good side that year. And the first quarter, I copped a heavy knock off James from Adelaide and I broke my jaw and cheekbone. Yeah, so that was pretty excruciating. Um, it was disappointing too, because I thought we had a good chance of going all the way that year. So um, I su- suffered a bit of concussion with that. That wasn't great. So them two injuries are probably the, the worst two I had. Um, I was pretty lucky, to be honest. Like Most of my injuries were copped in the last game of the year. I dislocated my shoulder in the end of 97 uh, against Bulldogs in the first quarter. Um, and then obviously the broken cheekbone and jaw at the end of the last game in 98. So I didn't really miss any footy. Um, until sort of latter stages of my career when I kept tearing my calf for fun, which was disappointing. That's probably finished my career, to be honest, like then calf injuries when they start to get scar tissue in there and they, yeah, they start to fatigue, they tear pretty easily. You mentioned concussions there. Uh, I mean, that's a massive issue for the AFL now. Obviously, what we know now, we didn't really know back then and obviously modern science and that is uh, that advanced. I mean, did you ever play with a concussion? Oh, 100%, yeah. I've copped a few knocks, yeah. There's no question about that, yeah. Not by too much up there, the boys reckon, but um, <laughs> rattled the brain a few times. But back then it was just like, well, like I said, things have changed now. Like, you wouldn't be able to go back on and play. But, yeah, I would have suffered a few. I, I broke my jaw three times, I think, and cheekbone once uh, in my career. So, yeah, I certainly played with a few. Actually, I played, I remember when I was in Tassie playing senior footy down there, I broke my jaw. And back then, they, they wired the teeth up. And I played two weeks later with the teeth wired up. So it's pretty mad. We wouldn't be allowed to do that now. But, yeah, that's pretty much what you've done when you're a young bloke, sort of. Yeah, that's how it was. And I guess sort of tragedy with Danny Frawley a few years ago, um, who sadly did commit suicide. And they sort of attributing sort of concussions and that old school mentality of playing on. Is I mean, we look back in fondness and, you know, like, oh, the players were really hard back then. But are we sort of not really taking into account the effects that that has on them as you become older? Yeah, for sure. I was pretty sad about Danny. I spoke to him probably a week before that happened because he was a coach with the country team and being a country coach, I spoke to him a fair bit on the phone about players who went and played under him in that level. But yeah, it's, it's sad pretty much what happened there. But look, the game's better off now than what it was back then. It was pretty sad, clearly what happened to Danny. But I think now with everything that's changed and evolved in in the industry in terms of players being better looked after and, and, and the, the uh, concussion protocols, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot more staff there to monitor that type of stuff, but it can certainly have an effect for those players. I think Sean Smith's another one um, who suffers from, from, from headaches, et cetera, what it might be. But, yeah, I think the game's in a better place than probably what it was back then. There's no question about that. And the final year of your career, uh, well, playing career, uh, 2003, I believe, I think it was the qualifying uh, final against Port Adelaide over at Amy Stadium. I think uh, Daniel McPherson, I think, was named in the side because you were injured, but then all of a sudden there was a late change, uh, McPherson out, uh, Creswell in. Were you, were you pretty underdone or you were just going to play through it regardless? Uh, last round in that year, I hurt my groin against Melbourne at the MCG. I think I only played half a game. And then, look, to be honest, I was pretty, it's a pretty bad way. I didn't think I was any chance of playing again that year. But I had a jab under ultrasound in my groin. And I felt like after that, they said I couldn't run for two or three days. And then after that, I felt like an 18-year-old. <laughs> I, was, I was right to play. So I should have had a few more of those. But, yes, yeah, so I was lucky enough to play in that game. One of the great wins. I mean, mm. yeah, we were 
severe underdogs. They finished on top, and maybe unbeaten that year. I'm not sure. I can't remember, but it was over there. And I think we got out to about 40 or 40 odd points in front. They they come back hard as late. That was one of the great wins, um, and one win I'll certainly remember in a long time. Yeah, everyone played really well. We were really well set up that year, and that was when Ruzi really brought that Bloods culture in to our footy club. Yeah, I'll never forget. It was massive for for our, for our club, and and probably the the start of the belief that moved into 2005 for his winning the flag, I think. And the Swans winning the flag in 2005, do you, how did you look at that? Because you had been on the back of 96 where you guys lost it and you're kind of the transition from the old guard to what was the new guard with the, with the Bloods. Obviously, you would have been happy for the boys, but was, it, was there a bit of envy thinking, oh, I wish I, wish I was out there? Oh, I would have been great to be out there. I mean, but clearly I couldn't. I knew my time was up, like... Yeah, I was pretty fit. I was pretty banged up by the time I finished. Although we all want to keep playing, you just not. I was never a quick player, and I, I got slower. But like my body just wouldn't allow me to do things that that I could do in the past. And when you get older, you look for shortcuts a little bit more. I think looking back on it, you know, not taking the road you meant to take, and not going as hard as you, you normally would if you're four or five years younger. That that happens naturally, sadly, but. Yeah, I was I was really pleased for our club because it had been so long since we since we'd won a flag. And like I said, I played with a lot of those players who played in two oh five. So it was great to see it happen. Although I wasn't in a great headspace myself um, at that time, um, it was great to see to see the boys win that win that premiership. And I think uh, there was a seventy two year gap between South Melbourne and Sydney uh, with the premierships. But I think if you look at the, um, the sides, you know from the early 90s, all that, all that through that 90 period, uh, that was while a lot of those players maybe didn't win, a, weren't part of the grand final, didn't win a premiership, they were definitely part of, I guess, leading to 2005, if that makes sense. I think so. I mean, I, I look back, some of my favourite people of the club is like Dennis Carroll. I think Dennis played 217 games, never played in a grand final, but Dennis and, and David Murphy and Barry Round and all those players come through some pretty tough times. Paul Kelly's another one. People don't realise, probably the players today, the facilities we had, like I spoke with Bucky, like we were training on the showgrounds with no goalposts. The grass was about 10, 8 inches thick. Like it was, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a paddock to be honest, but no real gym facilities. Mark Bays is another one, like... Yeah, they would have been over would have been over the moon to see see our club win that flag. I'm sure that they'll be disappointed. Clearly, that we never done it when we we done it, but certainly we certainly feel part of the, of the club and being able to evolve it to where it is today. Now, looking at uh, your post playing football days, 2004, you sort of mentioned it uh, at the top of the interview. You you wind up uh, at Geelong, but I heard in a previous interview that you really wished that you didn't leave uh, the Cats as an assistant coach. Yeah, it was a bad move. I had a great relationship with Bomber. Um, signed a two-year contract. Had a had a really strong empathy with um, with the playing group, um, particularly Jimmy and Cameron and, and James Kelly and those type of players. Um, our family wasn't happy in Geelong at the time, and just out of the blue, I had a phone call from from Graham Allen and, and Lee Matthews about heading up there. Yeah, like I said, it was probably the biggest regret of my life leaving Geelong. To be honest, I should have stayed there, but it was probably the probably the catalyst really for sort of what happened after that yeah, um, with my life outside of footy. So, 
happened now, but yeah, I wish I'd have stayed there, that's for sure. You're in Brisbane 2005, I'm guessing it would, would have been around that time. Lee Matthews, he's kind of on the tail end of his coaching career there. Was there any wisdom or anything that uh, you got from Lee? 205, 206, I was under Lee. The, th- the, the big difference from going to Geelong to Brisbane was I pretty much had full control of the midfield. Uh, Bomber was really good at you know, delegating to his assistant coaches. We took training, we took meetings. When, when I went to Brisbane, Lee was the other way. He liked full control. So we didn't have a lot of a lot of ownership of our areas, to be honest. So that was the big difference that I noted. So there you get more time on your hands. You lose that that capacity to think, I think, and really be involved. You're there basically just to, for numbers to roll the balls out. Not not able to have the impact that I had at Geelong. Sort of um, didn't wasn't great for my mindset at that time and wasn't able to, to satisfy my mindset. And that's basically when uh, things went downhill for me. And you've, you mentioned in previous interviews that uh, that's sort of, I guess, where the addiction to gambling really kind of started or was at its peak. Having your uh, gambling addiction and your money issue sort of uh, in the front paper or in the public eye, was uh, that good in a sense to keeping you accountable or was it only when you would serve time in prison that that was the, uh, I guess, the ultimate wake-up call? I have, this is my, my personal belief is it's any addiction is is tough to come out of, and in my time when I was first diagnosed with a gambling addiction, although I knew I had it, but sort of don't get diagnosed for it. I didn't get diagnosed I think till two thousand and eight or nine because uh, you don't believe it. And compulsive gamblers that are compulsive liars. Um, it just comes, you know, hand in hand. So. I don't think the AFL or the general um, public took gambling uh, seriously enough, uh, to be honest. But it is an addiction and it's very dangerous and you'll do anything you can to get your hands on money so you can gamble, so you get that thrill. So that thrill was taken away from me, not only from that footy environment to then when I was at Geelong, I had that thrill of being able to help with players all of a sudden. I'm in Brisbane, not doing a lot, sitting around. So that thrill and that sort of, willingness to win went then into hand in hand with with gambling and basically when you lose you get angry and you want to win again pretty much what happened on a footy field happened outside in the gambling in the horse racing which i was into the horses so from that point of view it was embarrassing for me and i knew i let a lot of people down so you feel really lonely but the thing about being a compulsive gambler and being addicted to gambling you always think that one big win away from paying up all your debts and everything goes back to normal and unfortunately it doesn't work like that. So for me to hit rock bottom and, and go to prison was, was a godsend. When you're sitting there in, in, in a jail cell and for 10 months you get a lot of time to reflect upon, geez, what am I doing here? How did this happen? I shouldn't have went and bought that BMW that time that, where I got introduced to Darren Beeman, a lot, a lot of things, you just go back to that, like why did I buy that car, but certainly for me coming out there with a new fresh mindset with a, that I'm going to move forward and not look back and try and better myself and not make those mistakes and help others, like I still do a lot of one-on-one counselling with, with people with, with gambling issues, some you help, some you can't, that's just natural, but that's sort of my mindset and that's what I look forward to doing in the future. I uh, only recently found out that someone sort of in my friend's circle uh, 
that they actually had a gambling addiction and part of the process, I guess, of rehabilitation was confronting people that they had wronged or sort of stole money from and apologising. Is that something similar to a process that you went through? Yeah, 100%, no question. Yeah, I made contact with a lot of people when when I was inside, um, even when I got out. It's it's confronting and certainly not who I was, who, who I became, and most of them understood that. Like I said, it's taken a lot more seriously now. There is a lot of, sadly, there is a lot of players in the AFL system who are going through what I went through um, and in general society itself. And I think now um, it is taken more seriously and it's obviously it's important that you get that help to so you don't spiral out of control, um, certainly like what happened to me. And not to use the pun, but I mean, who picks up the bill there? I mean, uh, does the AFL need to take more more caution in making sure this doesn't happen or does it come back to the player uh, as their own responsibility? I mean, you know, we've had in the past players gambling on games, whether it be their own or other games or, you know, having gambling addictions. Does the AFL have to put their hand up? But I know they're kind of in, you know, they've got a lot of advertisers that are, you know, your tabs and your sports bets and what have you. So where's the line, I guess? Well, it's thrown right in your face. I mean, I would have thought that, a lot of AFL players are, uh, are, um, are compulsive in what they do. That's what makes them great players, I think. That's just what I think. I mean, if they do something, they normally do it to the best of their ability. And sometimes players are told not to overtrain, but they overtrain because they want to be the best they can. Mm. So to system or that environment where, where you, you are betting can be dangerous. And obviously seeing that on TV all the time about betting and margins and that type of stuff is, is not good for young people coming through. So being, I think the club environment is really important and it's really important that players around each other look out for each other and, and, and even club personnel that if they see warning signs, they need to, to help. And Because I remember, you know, the AFL did send people out to, to clubs and we would sit there and they would talk about the dangers of gambling. But you always think and say, that's not me, that won't happen to me. Same old stuff that it does, sadly. The warning signs were there for me, but once again, kept it to myself and got myself deep into trouble where where I should have sought help, but I didn't. And that's really important, I think, when you get to those situations that you open up and speak because um, you go into some pretty dark mindsets and it's, and it's not good for your mental health. It's not good for people around you. Um, so it's important that you do seek um, advice and help. There are always these people out there that will help you and, and help you come out of it. And sadly enough for me, it made me hit rock bottom before I could sort of open up and understand the, um, the hurt and what happened to me. And I know with sort of alcoholics and any sort of uh, drug addict, they kind of they, they they can almost sort of count the days until they had their last drink or their last relapse or whatever you want to call it. Can you remember how long it was until you looked? To, since you've gambled? Oh, I haven't gambled since I've come out um, in 2010. Yeah, so I was pretty fortunate. Like, I wasn't a... I only started gambling the latter part of my career, so it wasn't in my bloodstream. So it was more like a, uh, it took over from the adrenaline of playing footy, um, to be honest, and basically that was the... That's what it was for me. So it was that that ability to compete again and try and win. 
in a different aspect than, than playing footy. That's what it was. And sort of, so I was pretty, I was lucky that it wasn't in my bloodstream. So it wasn't, it was easier for me to stop probably than others who have been gambling since they're 17, 18, I would have thought. But I was lucky enough to have great support from my wife, Jo. We decided that we wanted to build a future together um, and gambling was going to be part of that. So I had the kids to look after and sort of my mindset, like I said, changed a lot when I went away. I just had a lot of time to think about what I needed to do and made a plan. And when I got out, I executed that plan. I remember walking around the streets of Queensland, letterbox dropping so I could start my business up. And they're the sort of things that I needed to to do to to build my life again. And is the temptation yeah. still, is it still there? No. Nah. No. Nah. I didn't think about it. Not at all. Like I said, like it wasn't in my bloodstream. I took it up late. So not at all. Don't even think about it. Barely watch a, a race, to be honest, unless it's on Channel 7 sometimes at this time of year when most of the carnival races are on. But, mm. yeah, it's not, it's not what I think about. I've got a good business. So I coach a lot of young players. So my mindset's pretty much taken up on that. And you did write a book from AFL Glory to Prison, The Long Road to Redemption. Uh, that was Creza. Uh, was that, I guess, part of, I guess, the healing process by uh, having that book as well? The toughest thing I've ever done. And the reason it was the toughest thing I've ever done is because I had to recount everything that I've done in that past. So when I'd come out, I was looking forward. I wasn't going to do a book. I was never on the agenda. It was, it was about moving forward, working hard to, to build up my life again, and I ran into um, Rick Ollerenshaw at a uh, at a 40th, and he said, why don't you write a book? I oh, don't know, like, I, I don't want to recount all the people I've hurt and what I've been through, and it's sort of not high on my agenda, and we had a couple more chats after that, and, and I thought, oh, why not? I might as well try and help people and let my children understand what I went through, and because I'm not the only one that's done it, and like I said, it was basically more about let people understand and there is some people that I've sent my book into who are in prison who went through some similar situations, one being an ex-AFL player. And so, yeah, it was pretty tough to write, I've got to say that. And you're mentioning uh, helping people and uh, counselling people. What is the best way to approach it? Say if uh, I have a partner or a friend who I think may have a gambling addiction or any really type of addiction, I guess the worst thing you can do at times is confront them. Is there a way to go about it or, I mean, what's the best process in your opinion? Most people who I speak to reach out to me. Um, I've had letters written to me about some of the issues they've gone through, which is great because I, I love that. So I haven't had to actually confront anyone about them having problems. Most of the people I've sort of spoken to and had dealings with have had problems and have reached out. And basically, my big philosophy is just be honest. Like, let's put it all down on on, on, on paper. Let's work through it. What's our plan of action? What do we need to do? And and those sorts of things that we, we sort of work through um, and stay in regular contact to make sure those are actioned. You know, like there's a there's a person I'm working with at the moment who their family reached out to me and, yeah, we, we wrote down and actioned a lot of things for him. He's actually fine, my friend, so I can actually look up and see where he is all the time. So he's got, got accountability to know that I know he's not in a TAB or a pub and those sort of things can actually help him get on the straight and narrow, although it's pretty regimented and tight, like that's probably what he needs um, so it doesn't occur again. But... Um, they're the sort of things that um, that we sort of work through and talk about. 
And uh, I guess the current day, uh, landscaping business, uh, executive gardens, uh, scapes, that's uh, treating you pretty well? Yeah, it's great. So it's a, another enjoyment. I obviously um, got qualified as a, as a construction landscaper when I come out. It's good you work with your hands and there's a lot of different varieties to, to landscaping, building decks, tandem walls, irrigation turf and, and so on. So, And I've got like, some really good young people who work for me. So you know, it's not about making money all the time. It's about obviously clearly having a purpose and um, helping people become better people. And we've got a really good crew um, who work for me and Joanne and, and it's really enjoyable to see the finished product, especially you know when you start something at a blank canvas and a patch of dirt and you can turn it into something really special and you see the, the smiles on people's faces that they've got something to really um, to enjoy in their backyard or you know we do a lot of commercial work so we do some schools and tapes etc so that's that's really enjoyable as well but um, yeah it's been uh, it's been a godsend really to be honest it's a great trade to be in. Hey, can we get you up on the central coast here to have a look at uh, my backyard? Yeah, I, we go up there a little bit. I like getting up, the, up that Hunter Valley up there playing a bit of golf. So um, we normally stop on there on our way to Queensland. I think we've been to Sydney, South Coast, uh, around Ulladulloway. Yeah, sort of Melbourne. Yeah, we, we travel a bit, Canberra. So that's sort of um, that's sort of what we're looking at. In Queensland, we're looking to get up there now, so that'll be good. Um, we're tendering for a couple of big jobs up there, so we're looking to, um, to open up a bit more. And if people want to find out more information about executive gardenscapes, how can they do so? Yeah, certainly, obviously, um, on LinkedIn, uh, you can look me up or obviously on our Facebook page, Executive Gardenscapes, um, you'll, you'll find us and you'll see all our, uh, all our work and obviously we're very competitive and um, you'll get a good product. You mentioned earlier in the interview that you've got a 14-year-old, is it son uh, in Tassie at the moment? Yeah, so I've got three boys and a little girl. Um, well, not little anymore. Emily turns 19 this year. Jake is uh, 17, so Jake lives here with me. So he's in the Murray Bush Rangers TAC Cup side. Uh, he goes quite well. And Josh, my younger one, plays in, in Hobart in Tassie. Um, he's a very, very good young player. Hopefully we'll see him in the red and white in the next uh, next three years. He goes pretty good. And obviously uh, young Jaden. Um, he's three to me and Joanne have got a little boy as well so three boys so hopefully they can all go on and, and follow in their dad's footsteps mate, <laughs> like all dads want of course uh, it doesn't always happen that way but um, it'd be great if they did was um was one of them in the uh, the Tasmanian North Academy yeah both of them were so Jake's moved here now he's doing a, an apprenticeship as a, a chippy so like I said he's in the TAC Cup Murray Bush Rangers as a bottom age and Josh was just, yeah, well, I'm pretty sure he's, he's still down there now. He'd be in that North Academy if it's still running. But, yeah, he um, he looks the more likely one, I think. And uh, perhaps uh, would uh, North North Melbourne try to uh, sweep on him or could we get a father-son rule at the Swans? Uh, we're hoping for the father-son rule. He's, he's got red and white running through his blood. <laughs> I'd imagine that uh, if Sydney had any interest, I'm pretty sure what he'd be saying to North Melbourne. So, yeah. Boys love the swan, so it'd be great to see him one day if they got the opportunity to do that. Absolutely. You turn 50 next year, correct, Darren? Well, the, the <laughs> unfortunately, yes. So 49, so 50 next year. Come around quick. What's in store for the next 50 years for Darren Creswell? I don't know if I'll last that long. Uh, I'll have to stop running, that's for sure. But um, just to enjoy life and 
like I, like I said, I'm really in a really good spot, probably the best spot that I've ever been in. Really happy with life. Business is good. Family life's good. So just just enjoy it while I can because you never know what's around the corner. As a bit of a fan to kind of really be, uh, be a mad fanatic, I have to sort of say watching you uh, as a young kid, I always thought that you were one of the greatest players to play for the Swans and in the AFL. And you could always guarantee when Darren Creswell was in the side that, uh, you know, you're going to give 100%. And I just want to thank you for taking the time today to uh, speak with us and just uh, how it can people get in contact with you, I guess, if they are experiencing any gambling issues or any type of addiction or they want to get their uh, backyard looking schmick. So basically what a lot of people do, obviously I'm on LinkedIn, so if anyone wants to send a private message with any problems, but a lot of, I've had a lot of people, obviously the, they, they Google me and know that I coach at the Wangrata Rovers Football Club in the Ovens and Murray League. So I've had a lot of letters come through that way. So that's a, that's a good way to contact me if you're, if you're having some dramas or having some, some problems with, with gambling. Certainly reach out, I'm willing to help. And yeah, I've had a, that's basically been my point of contact with letters, et cetera, like that. So. I'm always willing to help where I can. Dan Creswell, thank you for taking the time to speak with us and hope the next few years are uh, as good as the past few have been. No worries. Thanks a lot, Joe. Appreciate it. And that will just about wrap things up here for Bloods of Old. Just a reminder to rate, review, follow and subscribe to the pod on Spotify, Google and iTunes. Connect with us on the socials. We're on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to uh, connect with me personally uh, on LinkedIn, at Joel Brown, love to collaborate with people. And uh, speaking of which, that's where I did connect with my next guest on the show, Gerard Bennett. He played 34 games for the Swans, and he's an absolute terrific storyteller. Here's a sneak peek of the next episode for Bloods of Old with Gerard Bennett. We had a we had such a good group of boys you know like i mentioned goodsy and mick baltzy heath james ryan fitzgerald fitzy one of the funniest men of you know i've ever met yeah i haven't lived with him my first year in adelaide i lived with him rocket made me plant him when when he was back at the crows and and trying to distract him by talking about girls and going out and stuff i think i was the only person that got distracted and he kicked two goals on me um <laughs> but uh yeah we, we had a great group we used to do a lot of stuff together you know we'd be out together shop together um beach together and that because we, we didn't have family about and we were each other's family. That is Gerard Bennett on the next episode of Bloods of Old. Can't wait to deliver that one to you. But until next time, up the mighty swans.